Amen. You can grab a seat and check this out. Gentlemen, Wilderness Weekend is upon us. There will be no video games. There will be no internet pads. This weekend you have two parents, me and Mother Nature. And I am Mother Nature's brother, Brother Nature. But you can call me Andy or Brother Nature. Your call. Thank you, Andy. Brother Nature. For the last three years, I have served as troop leader of the Pawnee Rangers. This is our handbook. I wrote the whole thing myself. You know, sometimes we find ourselves in a role or in a situation or in a relationship where there's an expectation uh, put upon us, and yet we find ourselves lacking the proper instruction or maybe the proper motivation to fulfill that expectation. Sometimes we find ourselves uh, in this kind of confusing spot with school, right? We don't know, like, how do I format this paper to submit about you know, piracy in the 1300s, a thing that one of our students is working on right now. It's awesome. You should take that class. We, but we get confused about that. Uh, we get confused about, man, maybe there's something at work where I, I'm called to perform some sort of project or do some task, and, and yet I don't know what's my motivation to do this. Like, why, why should I perform this thing? Sometimes we're in a relationship where we just want to know what to do, and we want to say the right thing or do the right thing, and we don't quite know what that person expects from us, or we don't quite know how to fulfill their desires. I mean, we find ourselves in these moments where we're confused or frustrated because we don't know how to meet someone's expectations. And sadly, many times as believers, we feel that towards God. We hear talk of how we're supposed to live in a certain way or, or talk in a certain way or, or act in this certain way, exhibit these certain behaviors and, and show these certain, this certain fruit in our lives. And yet so often we find ourselves confused and frustrated because we're not really sure how do I live as a Christian? Where's my instruction? Where's my motivation? Where am I supposed to go to meet God's expectation for his children? I mean, the church as a whole, I mean, we love to talk about salvation. Right? We love to talk about how you need salvation, how you got to find salvation, how you need to get saved. And yet we as a church have spoken about this with such consistency that a lot of times we've forgotten that we're lacking clarity. We throw out these big ideas and these terms and these concepts, and we oftentimes forget to just pause and, and define those terms. We, we forget to pause and, and kind of clarify what these concepts are all about. That's why for the past four weeks and this week and next week, we're talking about soteriology, which is the study of salvation, just the big church word for the study of salvation. And we're doing it here at Grace College in, in an attempt to better understand salvation. That's our goal, because if we better understand salvation, the more we understand salvation, the more we will appreciate the incredible gift of life that God has made available to all of humanity by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. And as we've been looking at this week to week, we, we've been trying to unpack these, these concepts, the, the atonement of Christ or the elect or, or, or looking at things like the exclusivism of our gospel. We, we've been looking at these kind of bigger theological terms and, and honestly all of them have sort of pointed at what has Christ accomplished? How do I become a member of the family of God? And this evening 
we're slightly switching gears, and we're talking about a thing that we call sanctification. A term that maybe you've heard before, maybe you haven't, but essentially what it's referring to is just the daily life of a Christian. Sanctification is the process that every Christian walks through, whether they're aware of it or not, whereby God begins to shape them and form them into being more like him, where he shapes our affections and our abilities so that we can better meet those expectations that he has for us. So we'll be starting in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, if you have your phone or there's Bibles near you. Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where we're seeing kind of one of the basic uh, or one of the, the primary passages where we see this expectation given to Christians about how they are to live. And now Paul starts off 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1, uh, by defining his audience. He says, finally, brothers and sisters, we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received instruction from us about how you must live and please God, as you are in fact living, that you do so more and more. Now, Paul starts out his call uh, with a very important qualification, right? He's defining his audience very intentionally. He's speaking to brothers and sisters. In other words, he's speaking to believers, to Christians. He's saying, look, if you are part of this Christian community, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, if you've recognized that you are sinful and broken and you can't fix that, if you recognize that you have that need to fix, to mend what is broken, and if you recognize that Jesus Christ stepped out of heaven and onto earth to live, die, and rise again for your sake, if you're willing to trust in that, if you place your faith in that, then you're a child of God. You're a brother or a sister of Christ and of me and of you. So Paul says, I'm talking right now to brothers and sisters. And this is very important because what he's about to get into is is a lifestyle, right? A way you must live. And we need to recognize that as believers, I mean, we, we not, we're not supposed to be forcing this. Paul was not forcing this. God does not force this upon the non-believers in our midst. So many times, and we've, we've talked about this before, but so many times we as believers, we get so caught up in other people's behavior, that a lot of times we forget that behavior always has to follow belief. We get so caught up worrying about what other people are doing or what color Starbucks cups are that we forget that we need to be worried about people's belief, not their behavior. The behavior is up to God and it comes later. Paul says, I'm speaking to brothers and I'm speaking to sisters. I'm speaking to the, I'm speaking to the Christian community. Because what he's about to talk about is a behavior. He's talking about a lifestyle, right? In a way that you're going to be living. He says, and it's a, it's a lifestyle that should take over who you are. It's a lifestyle that he says is desired not just by me, Paul. Uh, he says, but it's, it's a command that we gave you through the Lord Jesus. In other words, he's saying this isn't just my Paul's desire for your life. It's not just Jacob's desire for your life or Jimmy's desire for, his life, for your life or your youth leader's desire for your life. This is a desire for your life that has been given to you through Jesus Christ. This is God's desire. This is God's command. This is God's call for every believer. This lifestyle that is pleasing to God. Because I want you to live in this way. In other words, what God ultimately wants for every believer is that 
you would be sanctified. This is the will of God, your sanctification. Now when it says will of God, uh, sometimes we, we get maybe a little bit mixed up and we see the will of God and we assume, well, that's, that's that thing that always happens, right? The Lord's will, thy will be done. And, and God's will is always accomplished because he's all-knowing, he's all-powerful. And so what he wills happens. Uh, and that is true to an extent, right? There are certain things that the Lord wills and it's going to happen. We see that a lot in prophecy. We see that a lot in scripture. But, but what we see here is not the will, meaning this is what's absolutely going to happen. Instead, the word that Paul's using could also be translated as desire, so not necessarily this is the will of God and this is what will absolutely come about. This is instead the desire of God. A desire that's always there. It's not always met, but it's always there. In the same way that Scripture tells us that God desires all to come to him in relationship. It's not going to happen, but that desire is still there. You have desires that are consistent day to day. When you go home or to your room or your dorm room or your apartment or wherever it is, you generally, you have a desire that at some point in the evening, everyone kind of calms down a little bit, right? Everybody gets a little bit quieter because, you know, people are starting to go to bed, right? You, you have a desire, probably a consistent desire that everyone kind of reaches that quiet time. And yet, you might have that one roommate. You know, it's Steve, right? You already, some of you are like, mm-hmm, Yeah. Yeah, Steve, right? Like you're immediately thinking of that one roommate who maybe doesn't quite have that same desire, right? That one roommate who's still in the living room at 4 a.m. watching Gilmore Girls on full blast because he just got out of Netflix and he's really excited about it. I don't know. Like you have that roommate, you have that relationship, that person who isn't going to quite line up with your desire. Now it's still your desire, right? Your desire is consistent, but it's just not necessarily always met. Paul is saying the desire of God, the consistent desire of God is that you would be sanctified. And when I say sanctified, when Paul says sanctified, you could also translate this as uh, you would be made holy. And holiness is just the idea of being set apart. When you see holiness in Scripture, it's describing something that's set apart, something that's special and different, something that's been set aside, set apart from the rest. It says that ultimately God desires that Christians, that believers would be set apart, would be made holy, would be sanctified. Because this is the desire of the Lord. So how does that work? Well, to understand sanctification, uh, we have to define a couple other super-Christian terms. Uh, First of all, when you place your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you are, on one level, made holy in the sight of God. You are made righteous. Jesus Christ, we talked about this with the atonement of Christ. He was our propitiation. He redeemed us from sin, and he has imparted to us righteousness. Meaning that it's not just that the negatives, it's not just that our debts were paid, it's that we were given a surplus. It's not just that we are forgiven, we are made righteous. We are given the benefit, the, the blessings that he earned through his perfect life. It's credited to us as righteousness. And when that happens, our term for that as a Christian community, what we use is we say that you are justified. Right? You have experienced justification. And that's that one-time switch from unrighteous to righteous in the eyes of God. And nothing will ever change that. Nothing will ever take that away. Christ himself says, I am going to hold on to everyone that the Father gives to me. He says, no one can snatch you out of my hand. Paul says, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing. If we have placed our faith in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, 
if we are no longer a child of wrath, but instead adopted into the family of God, that is a one and done deal. There's nothing you can do or say to negate that. There's nothing anyone can do or say to take that away from you. You're justified. But it's more than just knowing that I've been justified. When I am justified, or as Paul says in Romans 5, says we have been declared righteous by faith. We now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, just another idea, this, another way of describing this justification. You are declared righteous by faith. And once that happens, it's more than just knowing, okay, yeah, I'm adopted into the family of God. I'm, I'm no longer a child of wrath. I'm now a son or a daughter of the Lord Most High. You also experience something that we've described, we've, we've coined the term of restoration. You experience restoration. Or in other words, as we're told in 2 Corinthians 5, that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. What is old has passed away, and look, what is new has come. Once you are justified by that faith that you've placed in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, you experience a transformation from being a slave to sin to being free in Christ. We no longer live under sin or under the law. Now sometimes, and we talked about this last week, sometimes we return to sin. We return to the law. We return to death and destruction. But we don't have to, and yet we do, right? Because on some level, we do have this new heart, this new identity, and yet we can choose to not live in that. In Romans, it tells us that we can either choose to live under the law of Christ, we can choose to live in the image of Christ, or we can choose the way of Adam, meaning the way of sin, of our sinful nature. We have that freedom to choose. Before we were justified, all we could ever choose was death. But now we have this new option that sometimes we take, sometimes we don't. That's why Paul encourages the church and uh, the Colossians. He tells them, look, I, I want you to put on the new self. I want you to put on this new desire, this new identity. Do it on a regular basis, on a daily basis. Choose life. Choose God over sin. This is made possible because we are restored to an extent. Right? Not, not perfectly. We're not quite there. We're not completely new. We're not fully restored. That will come in our future. But for the time being, we've experienced some of that restoration. So once we're justified and restored, suddenly we are experiencing, we're thrown into the midst of what we call sanctification. Something that Paul describes in Philippians 2 saying, then, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, continue working out your salvation with awe and reverence. Now, as Paul's talking about this idea of sanctification, he's saying, look, you need to be working out your salvation. Some people turn to this and they, they try to make it a works-based salvation. They try to say, well, no, it's kind of like, you're, he's saying you're working for your salvation. That's not true at all. The English translation here almost doesn't even do it justice. If you're reading this in Greek, it is incredibly clear that Paul is saying you are working out your salvation. In other words, you are taking your salvation and you're putting it into use. You're not working for it or to obtain it. Instead, you are putting it into action. It's the same idea that James speaks about in James 2. He says that we, if you have this faith and you don't use it, it's dead. It's useless. His faith without works is, is dead. He gives the illustration of if someone comes to you and he's uh, hungry and he's naked, 
You need to give that guy some food. Give him clothing. Give him shelter. Don't just tell him, like, oh, I'll pray for you. Hmm. You know, like, that's not, that's not good. Like, you're not addressing his needs. He says, your faith is useless. It's dead. Instead, put it into action. Paul says, work out your salvation. Work it out. Put it into practice. Take that free gift and put it into use. My wife and I got married January 9th, 2010. And... When Susan and I got married on that day, that wonderful day, uh, we did more than just sign our names to a piece of paper, marriage certificate. We did more than just put rings on our fingers and wave at everybody and go on a honeymoon. Like, where there was more to that than just that ceremony. On that day, moving forward, we adopted a new lifestyle, right? We started living as married people. We started putting our marriage into practice, Right, we moved in together. We still live together. It's generally what married people do. Uh, I'd highly recommend it. It's great. So we started doing that. Right? We started sharing a home. We shared uh, a bed. We started sleeping together. We started sharing a table. We started sharing resources. We merged our bank accounts. Where it was just, okay, this was my money and, and your money. And now it's our money. All right? These are our things. This was my spoon and that was your spoon. Now it's our spoons. It's a wonderful day because guys don't have a lot of spoons. And now I have so many. It's amazing. <laughs> so many spoons. You, you have that and you put it into practice. Susan changed her last name. She is, now, she is no longer Susan Walters. She is now Susan Smith. We started doing other married things. Like we, now we love brunch, right? You got to do that <laughs> when you're married. Well, we decided, you know what, that that, about a year into marriage when we were really starting to feel that first desire for like, maybe we should have a baby. Maybe that'd be super awesome. Uh, we got a dog. Because that's what you do when you're married. You take those steps and you put your marriage into action. Sanctification is the idea that you're taking that salvation that you've been given. It's not going anywhere. But you're putting it into use. You're working it out. You're putting it into practice. Sanctification is the ongoing process by which believers are enabled more and more to die to sin and live unto righteousness. If, if justification and restoration are my birth, then sanctification is my growth. And it's something that we are called to. It's something that all believers are expected to enter into, to participate in. Right? This is the lifestyle that Paul described in 1 Thessalonians 4. This lifestyle of, of pleasing God. And he's calling us to this, not again, not to earn our salvation, not to prove our salvation, but he's calling us to this because that's what you do in a healthy relationship. You seek to please the other person. If someone loves you and you love them in return, if there's a healthy relationship there, you are going to be growing closer together. You're going to be growing in your desire to please that person and serve that person. That's why we encounter crazy engagement stories that are just getting crazier and crazier. You have friends or had friends or have relatives who have gone through these elaborate, crazy plans to propose to their girlfriend. You've seen this play out because when you have a healthy relationship, you're seeking, man, how do I amaze this person? How do I express my love for this person? That's why we see insane videos like this one. Good man. Ladies and gentlemen, quick announcement if I may. My beautiful girlfriend, Brooke, and I have been together for a while now. Four years, baby. Four, who's counting, right? It's, uh, 
I think it's about time I ask her a very important question. Bobby the ring, please. Oh my god! Oh! <laughs> oh my god! No way! Now, just... Just to give you a heads up, I discovered after the fact that this is completely staged. It was a commercial for the, like, energy drink he was holding. I know, it's a little disappointing. But we see this happen. Like, you probably were like, no, that could probably totally happen these days because that's how insane our engagements have become. That's how insane our proposals have become. Because we as people, man, we recognize that if you love someone, if you have a healthy relationship with someone, you're going to be seeking to serve them and please them. If my wife, Susan, asks me, uh, you know, this evening, like, hey, do you mind taking the trash out? And my reaction is, oh, what? <laughs> you would probably see that, because I don't know why you're at my house. But if you saw that, you'd be like, your relationship needs some improvement. <laughs> like, there's not health here. We recognize that a healthy relationship has service and, and seeking to please the other person. That's what God wants from us. He desires us to live in such a way that it pleases him, motivated not out of fear, but out of love and thankfulness and gratitude. And thankfully, we're not just left to our own devices to make this happen. Because honestly, some of us have maybe tried to make this happen. Some of us have tried to like live a certain way or behave in this way or do that thing and speak in this way and view others as that way. And, and man, as we've attempted that, we'll fail. And I got to break it to you right now. You will always fail in and of yourself to please God, because God wants perfection. We, we can't do that. So instead, God doesn't expect us to do it in and of ourselves. Instead, God provides the ability and the affections that we need to meet this expectation that he's, he's given to us. That's why Paul says in Philippians uh, 2.13 that the one bringing forth in you both the desire and the effort for the sake of his good pleasure is God. In other words, if we want to enter into sanctification, first and foremost, we need to recognize God's in control of this, right? God is promised. He's promised to change our affections. In fact, this is a promise that he made long ago, thousands of years ago in the Old Testament. God looked at the nation of Israel who could not keep his commandments. I mean, he gave them 600-something commandments and laws and expectations, and they could not keep them. They couldn't. And God knew they couldn't. In fact, what we know now is that the Lord set forth that law and those commandments not to, for the people to find salvation. They've always been saved by faith alone. But instead, he set forth that law to show them how broken they were, to show them that they couldn't do it on their own, that there's no such thing as a works-based salvation. You can't save yourself by just pulling up your bootstraps and getting serious about working. You can't, you can't do it. So God promised back in the Old Testament, back in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36, he promised what we now call the new covenant, where he essentially looked at the nation of Israel and all their failure and all their problems, and he tells them, I'll fix this. I'll fix this. Instead of it being one of those breakup moments of, hey, it's, it's not you, it's me. It was God looking at the nation of Israel and saying, it's not me, it is, it is 100% you. You are the sole problem in this relationship, but I'm not breaking up with you. Instead, I'm staying with you, and I'm fixing this. God promised to give them a new heart. He says, literally, I will put my law within them and on their hearts. 
I'm going to change who you are. I'm going to shape your desires. I'm going to shape your affections so that you want what I want. My daughter, Charlotte, is wonderful. She's almost 11 months old, and she enjoys telling us how old she is by putting stickers on her chest and taking pictures. But she has reached a stage in her life now where she loves celery sticks, loves them. Hand her like a little celery stick, and she'll just like jam that sucker in her mouth and just go to town. She's chewing on them a little bit, but she really likes to just kind of crawl around the house and pull up on stuff and act like she's going to feed it to the dog. And they're like, (laughs) not really, and start eating it again. And she does this. Why? Because I love celery sticks. Right? I give them to her. She, she enjoys celery sticks because she lives in a family where celery sticks are appreciated and applauded and valued, right? Because, and all of us have that. We all have that kind of weird habit or, or affection or we love cheese whiz. Why? Because dad loved cheese whiz or mom did that or whatever it is, right? We have those quirks and, and characteristics and those affections because we were raised in that environment. God says, I'm going to change your affections to be like mine. I'm going to change the desires of your heart. I'm going to give you a new heart that's going to change not just your affections, but also your abilities. He's bringing forth in you not only the desire, but he's bringing forth the effort itself. He's equipping us to obey. He's equipping us to walk by the Spirit. That's why we see wording like that. Romans 8, we're, we're, we're walking by the Spirit. Galatians 5, we see the fruit of the Spirit. Where if we want love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control in our lives, we don't find that in and of ourselves. Instead, we have to allow the Spirit to work through us. The Holy Spirit that indwells, indwells every believer produces that. Charlotte is only able to enjoy celery sticks because I give them to her. And I'm only able to give her celery sticks because they are given to me by H-E-B, from whom all blessings flow. And H-E-B is only able to give them to me because they get them from farmers who pull celery sticks out of the ground. And when they pull them out, they look like this, which I thought was crazy. Never seen that before. Now you know. So when they find celery, right, when it, when it comes down that chain, what originally someone has to do is go to the ground and find that nightmare and pull it out of the ground and package it and make it presentable so that you can eat it. Which I know that some of you that were on the fence about celery to begin with, and you see this and you're like, I'm de- I definitely don't like celery. Like, that's, that's it. I'm, I'm sorry for you. We should talk. But we recognize that ultimately they have to go to the source, right? They have to go to the ground when if we want to have love, joy, peace, patience, all those things, we have to go to the source. We have to go to the Spirit. We have to allow the Spirit to work through us. We have to walk by the Spirit. We have to allow God's Holy Spirit to to move and act. So how do we do that? If God's changing us, if God wants to change us, how do we position ourselves to be led by the Spirit in that way? What I love is that Paul gives us three super practical steps. To wrap up the passage, he gives us just three simple steps of how to align ourselves with the Spirit. He says, first, you've got to do everything without grumbling or arguing. And this sounds like he's saying to do something, but what he's talking about here is also maybe a little confusing because we were like, well, hey, we were discussing these big like theological concepts, and then he's like, and quit whining. Like, that doesn't... Ah, it doesn't quite fit. And yet what we see is Paul is talking about grumbling. Why? Because ultimately grumbling, arguing, that's not just born out of the fact that my feet hurt, right? If I'm grumbling about, ah, my feet hurt, like that's not just 
in and of itself uh, a thing? It, it, what is that born out of? What's the root of that? What's the source of that grumbling? What's the source of our argument? Ultimately, it's pride. Ultimately, I'm going to argue with my brother or my sister or my roommate. Why? Because I think that my way is right, and they think something else, and that's stupid. And we need to talk about that, and I need to put you in your place. I'm going to grumble about something because I think the world should be in a different way, or I think that my life should align with a different path, or I think that this or that or whatever it is. When we grumble and complain and argue, what it is is it shows that we lack humility. We lack humility. So we need to be cautious about, man, where, where are we grumbling? Where are we complaining? Maybe that's the challenge you need to grab a hold of this week. Maybe you are just a really negative person, or maybe you even just thought of, man, there's this one area, though, or this one class, or this one relationship, this one family member, this one roommate, this one situation, this one workplace scenario where I am so negative. And what Paul is saying is that that's going to interfere with your sanctification. That's going to interfere with you seeing God's plan. It's not going to discredit you, right? It doesn't mean that God loves you less. But what it means is that you might miss out on what God's doing around you. If you're so focused on what you want and what you desire, you might miss what God's doing in your midst. So check yourself. And where and why do I complain? Paul says it's more, though, than just humbling ourselves. He says we're also going to want to be blameless and pure, children of God without blemish, though you live in a crooked and perverse society in which you shine as lights in the world. Now, when Paul says that we are called to be blameless and pure, and when he says blameless there, it's not talking about perfection. It's not talking about someone who has no faults. It's not someone who makes no mistakes. Instead, blameless, he's actually using a term that brings to mind the idea of someone who owns up to their mistakes, who makes mistakes and yet deals with them appropriately. Sometimes our instinct is to make a mistake and then run away or ignore it or hope no one finds out or lie about it. Sometimes we, we commit some sort of mistake or we have an error and we just think, oh, maybe it'll just go away on its own. Maybe I torp the couch cushion and I'll just look away from it and maybe everything will be okay. Or feather duster, I, don't, I really can't tell what that is. Or maybe sometimes we rip open that bag of potting soil and we think, no, I'm just not going to look at it. It's going to be okay. Maybe it'll just resolve itself. Man, sometimes that's our instinct because we're afraid of confrontation or we're afraid of looking dumb or whatever it is. Paul says, no, we are called to be blameless. In other words, to deal with those mistakes. That's what God desires from us. That's how we align ourselves with the Spirit, by humbling ourselves to the point that we own up to our faults and our errors. We ask forgiveness where we need it. And why do we do it? So that we can shine as lights to the world around us. So we can shine as lights in the society around us. Because if we're living in this way, if we're living in a way that's blameless and pure, if we're acting and behaving like children of God, that's going to stand out, right? That's going to distinguish us from the people around us. It's going to make us look different. That's why Christ says in Matthew 5 that we should be the light of the world. That's why he says in John 17 that we're not of this world. That's why Paul in Colossians 4 tells us to have our conversations just heavy with grace and seasoned with salt. I was in a meeting a few days ago with, 
with some of our leaders, uh, and we had this moment, we were talking about that in Colossians 4, and it came up about how our conversation should be seasoned with salt, and one of the leaders was just kind of looking at me, and he was like, you know what? And addressed the group, he says, you know what? I have a confession to make. I have no idea what that means. Since I've heard this thrown around in Christian circles, grew up in the church, heard all this, about how we were supposed to be salt and all this stuff. He's like, I have, no, I have no idea. No idea what that is. It's like that end joke that your friends make and everyone's like, oh, and you're like, <laughs> you know, and you just kind of go along. Because I have no idea what that means. And what Paul's getting at, he's saying, look, when we talk, as we interact with the world around us, it should be seasoned with salt, meaning salt at that time was a valuable substance. It was, it was a preservative. It would keep your food fresh longer. It would get, add flavor and value to your food, or your product, whatever it is. And he's saying that's what our conversation, that's what our interactions should be like. It should add value. It should be for the benefit of the people around us. And if we do that, we'll shine as lights in our world. People will notice a distinction between us and others, between Christians and others. This is so hard. And I've, I feel it's somewhere that we fail a lot. I'm speaking to myself. Where we fail to be distinguished from the world around us. It's one of, I think, our enemy's favorite points of attack. Because even when we do distinguish ourselves, a lot of times it's not necessarily a good way. Sometimes it's in getting mad at Starbucks for cups. Sometimes it's in ways that doesn't reflect well on the God that we claim to serve, that we claim to follow. We're shining as lights because people look at us and they don't see these people that are super awesome and wonderful. They see a God who's awesome and wonderful working through them. What if people looked at Christians and they saw marriages that were healthier? What if they looked at Christians and saw students who worked harder, who were more respectful of their profs and of their classmates? What if people looked at Christians and saw people who were more gracious and more loving and more forgiving than the world around them? What would happen? I tell you, if people saw our lives in that way, if we really behaved in that manner, if we really shone like those lights, man, I, t- I tell you, they would be so much more willing to hear what we have to say. If they see us live in that way, they're so more ready to hear the gospel that we know is their only chance of hope and salvation. <laughs> Paul says, I, we got to be distinct. It's part of our sanctification. That's why we as a Christian community have embraced the ordinance of baptism. Why God gave it to us, instructed us about it in, in Scripture. That we would be baptized. In other words, that, that I would step forward in front of family and friends and relatives and workmates and whoever. And I would publicly declare my allegiance, my, my alignment with Jesus Christ. That I am immersed in this water, not, not just to show that I'm clean or getting bathed or something like that. I, I'm immersed because I'm identifying with Christ in his burial. I'm dying to sin. I'm dying to my old self. And so when I come back up, I am born again. Just as I identified with Christ in his burial, I identify with him in his resurrection. And I have new life, a new identity. That's why we 
are getting to do that. December 6th, we as a community are getting to celebrate this series, the soteriology, the salvation that God has given to us. We're celebrating it on our last time together, our last day together before the semester ends. On December 6th, we are, we're going to get to have a time of worship, a time where we go before the Lord in communion, a time where we get to see people get baptized. And I would encourage you, if you have never been baptized as a believer, if you've never made that public alignment with Christ, I'd encourage you to think about it. I encourage you to, even if you're still kind of on the fence, I would encourage you to to grab a howdy card that's going to be around you. There's some in the back. And just write down your contact info. Give us your name, your email. And somewhere on the sheet, write baptism. And if you turn it in to the back counter before you leave, I will contact you this week and just give you an opportunity to come in and, and chat and talk about it so that we can see that, so that you can declare that on December 6th. I encourage you, just consider it. Consider it. Because God has called us to be distinct, and yet so many times we lack distinction. Some of us right now are immediately even thinking of, man, yeah, I'm lacking distinction in that lie that I'm maintaining, in that relationship that I know is unhealthy. Uh, Maybe it's in that habit that I just can't kick, or it's in that class where I just have that attitude or that work ethic that doesn't distinguish me at all, Or, or maybe it's in the way that you view yourself, the way you talk about yourself, the way you think of yourself. Maybe it's the way you view others. But God has called us to be distinct. And yet what we need to realize as Paul wraps this up is that this distinction, this humility only comes if we hold on to the word of life. These things are only made possible by holding on to the word of life, by staying rooted in God's word. This is why Colossians 3 tells us to let the word of Christ richly dwell within us. God has spoken to us. He's given us his word, and we need to use this resource. It's incredible. It's not comprehensive, but it's sufficient. In other words, it's not comprehensive, uh, meaning if you've got, you know, so it's not going to tell you exactly what to say to Steve to make him stop watching Gilmore Girls at 4 a.m., the words aren't in there of, saith to Steve, stop it. So you're like, that's not going to be in there. But it tells us that when we have disputes, we should enter those things with grace and with love, that we should consider others more important than ourselves, that we should allow our speech to be heavy with grace, seasoned with salt. It's not comprehensive. It's not going to address every single issue that we can come up with in life, but it's sufficient. I mean, there are principles and there are guiding ideas. There's a foundational framework that we can allow to guide our paths in life. Stay rooted in God's word. So crucial. Because as we're in that, it's, it's more than just information. It doesn't just inform us. I mean, it influences us. As we spend time with it, as we engage with it, it puts us under the influence of the Spirit to obey, to enter into sanctification. Christians are called to live in a way that pleases God. And yet, we can't do this on our own. But thankfully, God knows this about us. He's not surprised. He's not shocked. He's not disappointed. Instead, God promises to change our affections, to change our abilities through the Holy Spirit and through his living word. And in doing so, he provides the instruction and the motivation we need to meet the expectations he has for his children. 
So let's thank him for that right now. God, we, we, we thank you that you have given us an opportunity to live for you. God, just as you uh, chose to, to deal with us with such grace and love and forgiveness, Lord, we thank you that we have the opportunity to extend that same grace, that same love, that same forgiveness to the world around us. Lord, we ask that we would be faithful to do so. Lord, we ask that you would guide our steps, that you would change our affections to match yours, that you would give us the ability to meet those expectations that you've placed before us. If you would take a moment right now and and ask the Lord to convict you of where you could improve. Ask the Holy Spirit to to bring to your mind where is it that you are lacking distinction right now? When is it that you could be spending time in his word? Or or maybe you're asking him to show you, I mean, where is it that you find yourself complaining out of pride instead of being thankful and gracious in humility? Ask the Lord to show you where could improvement be found and ask the Lord to give you the strength, to give you the motivation, to give you the instruction, to equip you to excel, to be sanctified, to be made holy in that. Ask him that right now.